Good afternoon and a more interesting twist today on the EPO's podcast. My name is Don McShensky and I'm a big proponent and supporter of the entire EGO's mission. I had an opportunity to be interviewed by Dr. Rochelle Kernan a few weeks ago and I said, hey, who's, who's, inter- who's interviewing you? She's agreed to be interviewed for this podcast episode. So good afternoon, Rochelle. Good afternoon. How are you? Great, great. Just for any listeners, my name is Don McShinsky. I'm based out of Midland, Texas. Work a lot also in Houston as a geoscientist with Strato Reservoir. As an introduction for Dr. Rochelle Kernan, she is a research fellow for the Australian School of Petroleum Energy Resources. And it will be talking a little bit about her experience in petroleum industry and the energy sector. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for interviewing me today. It's nice. <laughs> well, it was so, so exciting when you interviewed me. Was That was the first time I've been interviewed. And now this is my first time interviewing anyone else. Mm-hmm. I got some questions for you just so we can get to know you. Anyone who hasn't had a chance to meet Rochelle yet, you're, you're missing out on the brightest beam of sunshine. I, I don't know of <laughs> Thank you. As a, a colleague and also a friend. Help everyone just get to know you too. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Let me share those details. Yeah. So I was originally born in California and I lived there until I was like first grade. And my parents are from Wisconsin. So they took my sister and I and we moved back to Wisconsin to be with my parents' families so we could have more of a relationship with our grandparents. And while we were growing up, um, I just spent a lot of time outside. I mean, I didn't necessarily grow up in like rural Wisconsin, but it was rural enough. It was suburbia Wisconsin, so there wasn't a whole lot to do besides outdoor activities. Summer, winter didn't matter. You just dressed for the weather and you were outside. So I think that that is one thing that really influenced me a lot growing up and why I just started noticing a lot of things about the environment and nature and rocks and geology and the weather things like that i really became like in tune and paid attention to things from a very young age um i was in a really good uh school system in the 90s um the academic system in wisconsin was really strong like the public education was the government like really supported it and i went to a really good school and I was able to take a geology class in high school, like as a science elective. And Miss King was my teacher and she was this tiny little 100 pound blonde woman, absolutely adorable and super, super brilliant and smart. I remember she had like the coolest clothes and the coolest glasses and she was like really outgoing and she just made it really fun and really cool. And it didn't seem like this boring, thing that like old guys did (laughs) if you will so um she's just very inspiring and from there I kind of knew that I always wanted to um pursue something in science um probably something more biology environmental science geology and not necessarily like physics geochem the really super math heavy things I just I loved sort of the creative side of the sciences So I would say she really influenced me a lot. And then also my parents, 
my parents were always like super supportive of my academic endeavors. Um, I was never really into sports for whatever reason. It just never appealed to me that much. So they never like pushed me into it. I was way more interested in like orchestra and debate and math club and forensics and stuff like that. So all my extracurricular time in primary school was like devoted to that. And that's when I really got into like academics and studying and reading and science and things like that. So they really nurtured that and let me kind of do whatever I wanted. And I think it was also because like they didn't, um, they went to college, but they never finished college. So they tried it, you know, in the seventies and eighties and it wasn't really for them. So I think that they wanted to make sure and support that because I was so in it. They wanted to make sure that, you know, I was able to actually get those degrees that they never, um, that they didn't finish essentially. So, um, yeah. So I would say that they were also a really big influence in my life. Okay, so you're the first college graduate. Yes, I am a first-generation college student. Yep. <laughs> no, that's incredible. Yeah. What a powerful story about these initial geology professors. My, when I pretty much changed my life when I mm-hmm. changed course um, Dr. Danny Horn over at Utah Valley University. For some reason, he was teaching just a, a basic historical geology course that semester. But his enthusiasm excitement about every chapter we turned and then he kept up on all the latest news and then mm-hmm. I remember one time he invited uh, so it's been quite a while but he invited a guest speaker in who his company was doing this new crazy thing they were they were fracturing <laughs> the wells yeah <laughs> horizontal and we thought oh that's crazy why would you do that yeah <laughs> new technique it, so but when you have a teacher who's so enthusiastic right at the beginning of your geology exposure it, it can change your entire life yeah just like it did for you absolutely um, did you pick up a lot of rocks growing up yeah <laughs> yes my mom would find them in the wash machine like the little pea gravel that was on the playground so I would like save all the little pieces of quartz because they were like shiny crystals <laughs> and they would be in my pockets and they'd come out the laundry and she was always like Rochelle like I have pebbles all over my laundry <laughs> So, yeah, that's kind of how it started. (laughs) (laughs) So, after, so so that was a big influence for you through, so what, when exactly again did you take that that first geology class my teacher? 10th grade. Oh, 10th grade, great. 10th grade, yeah. Tell the audience a little bit more how you progressed after high school. Yeah, so after that, I decided, um, for financial reasons, uh, grew up very much a blue-collar, lower-middle-class America. My dad worked in a factory. My mom drove a school bus. Um, So going away for college wasn't really an option for me financially. So I lived at home with my parents, and I commuted uh, to the UW, University of Wisconsin uh, school that was just down the road. It was like a 20 minute drive, UW Oshkosh. So it was a four year college that was affiliated um, with UW Madison. It was just in a more rural location than Madison, Wisconsin, but it was in the same system. And it was an undergraduate only uh, geology program that I was in. And I actually, so at that time, I didn't, I hadn't traveled 
out really outside of Wisconsin. I mean, I grew up my earliest life in California, but like we never went on trips or vacations or anything just because we weren't like in a place financially to be doing that. So I, most of my growing up was like at home and in that, the Midwest, upper Midwest. So I, my dream, or I originally started going to school for earth science education. So to be a high school teacher, like, because I had such a good experience in high school, I thought, oh, well, you know, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And it wasn't until my junior year of college. So I was in education. It was like a double environmental science minor, uh, geology major, education major. And it was my junior year that I was asked by one of my geology professors to do a research project because he had gotten some money, um, I think it was like through Exxon or something like that, because he had been a researcher in uh, the Exxon lab, like back in the early 80s. And he had asked me to work on this geochemical um, chemostratigraphic problem, looking at the sandstone and carbonate petrography over the Permian-Triassic boundary. So it was basically using geochemistry and um, petrography to see a big shift in the depositional environment. So you're going from like a very diverse environment at the end of the Permian, and then you had a mass extinction, big climatic shift, and then you, you know, early Triassic, basically life had to sort of restart, if you will. And he was really happy with the work I had done on that project. And he then kind of told me, you know, you can go to graduate school, like you can get paid a stipend to live in a different state, do research, you know, outside of the Midwest, potentially abroad. There's all these opportunities. And it wasn't until then that I was like, oh, wow, like I didn't I didn't even realize like that geology had that component to it. So um, it sounded really fascinating to me and really interesting so I he started putting me in his in contact with some of his networks for and told me to apply to graduate school well I ended up applying and I got into almost all the different schools because at that time things were really good um in the university system in the U.S. and I kind of was able to pick and choose I didn't really understand at the time that everything that I had been working on or wanted to work on had ties to the oil industry and finding oil resources I hadn't necessarily made that industry connection yet because I hadn't taken petroleum ge geology and stuff like that. It was like a very academic, uh, traditional geological program. So I just basically followed my interests and that took me to research in Australia doing a master's where I started working in Australia in 2009 and then I went to New Mexico State and worked on my research there for my master's degree. And then it wasn't until I got to NMSU and started like understanding the application of the work that I realized I could go off and work in, in for an oil company. And I, I mean, I had up until that point only really, I had no, I didn't know anything about it. I was like, oh, like, like a gas station, like what? <laughs> so I definitely don't come from an oil family or anything even remotely close to that. <laughs> what, what an interesting and you really seized the bull by the horns yeah. that you um, had a good opportunity, you went for it. And so what degrees did you end up with? So I got my master's in 2010, and then I got a job in Houston. So it was after the 08 recession. So I was coming into it, finishing at an upturn, which was really beneficial. So I got in right away. I started working for Shell 
in Houston, in the Gulf of Mexico offshore, and I was able to directly apply a lot of my knowledge working in Australia um, onshore outcrops. I was able to use a lot of that to understand reservoir placement uh, below salt canopies in the ultra deep water um, offshore Gulf of Mexico. And I did that for almost five years. And then I decided I was turning 30 and I was just like, I need, I, I knew I wanted to do a PhD. That was always a long-term goal of mine because I had always been very academically focused, even in high school. So um, it was like, okay, I'm turning 30. I'm not married. I don't have kids. I should just do this so I can really focus on it and give it everything I have before all that other all that other stuff comes. So I um, took an academic leave of absence and moved uh, to El Paso, Texas and did a PhD at the University of Texas, El Paso. And I went back to Australia and continued working on uh, the research in 2015. I started the similar type of research, but now because I had that industry experience, everything that I tailored and everything I worked on in my PhD was much more tailored to answering questions that maybe someone in an oil company drilling a well would have. Um, and I tried to make that like as academic and scientifically sound as possible. Oh, fantastic. So let's prepare a little bit. What were some of the favorite courses you took back in your academic days? And what are some of the areas of interest now in your professional days? Yeah. Have or have they changed? They've totally changed. I mean, it's like, I feel like I'm an ever evolving creature, <laughs> if you will. So when I started, I was like really into the integration between sedimentology and tectonics. So that was just, I was like baffled that like these small little tectonic environments created by like rising salt diapirs could have such a big influence over the depositional environment. And that interaction between oh my gosh, like you have this salt body creating topography and now you have like this little tiny barrier bar or lagoon or beach or all these really interesting reservoirs that are not laterally continuous. I mean, they might be in one direction, but not in the other direction. The The original geological pr principle of like the layer cake stratigraphy like didn't apply to this. And that's all I had ever learned. So that was something that I became pretty much obsessed with. Um, and how sedimentation records salt movement. Um, I, it was just absolutely mind-blowing and fascinating to me. So that I really, really enjoyed. And then um, as I started going through sort of the in, in, in industry um, experience and then also having an academic, a higher academic experience, I started noticing um, Things that would go on, like from a, a social science perspective, like sort of the injustices of, you know, working corporate America and the injustices of academic America and things like that. And I, I just, I don't know, I had always kind of paid attention, even like whether it was science, people, I've always felt like I've been an observer of everything going on around me and I just started observing things and I started feeling like well this person does really good science and why aren't they further along and why aren't they getting recognition the way that some of these other people are I mean what they're doing is just as scientifically valid so I just started noticing it more and more and more and and this was just came with age this was like just something natural I think it was like my maturity or something I don't know <laughs> 
But then I started wanting to know why. Why does this happen? Why are some people treated differently because of, you know, their gender, their ethnicity? Or even for me personally, what I mostly experienced was socioeconomics. Like how that greatly influenced who received opportunity in this country and who didn't. So, I mean, I'm privileged. I'm a white blonde female. So I can't really relate to maybe some of the things that some people in our community do, but I can definitely relate to being like the the rough edged, um, not necessarily like well spoken, um, poor girl from middle America up north that had like absolutely no influence, and I had a really bad like northern accent. <laughs> And I had people tell me, like, when I was interviewing, like, oh, my gosh, you cannot have that accent and expect to, like, be successful. I literally had a recruiter tell me that. And I just had a lot of these really bizarre experiences that I had never, ever noticed before. So I was just like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And I didn't understand for the longest time that it was, like, because I grew up in a very different type of socioeconomic environment than nearly all my peers just didn't have the same life experiences and nobody in my family could really relate to what I was going through at the time. So I, that's what really sort of was the triggering point for me. I just noticed these things that I had a different experience than most of my peers. So anyway, so I really started getting into DEI. So diversity, inclusion, um, equity, and then now they've added justice onto that acronym. And then it kind of led me to like being really passionate about like women as well and understanding like sometimes why women um, aren't included or, you know, there's certain areas that they benefit and other areas that they don't. And like why all this happens, these social dynamics, like what's going on? So I've been really into that. And then another component that was with me early was um, the environment. So I've always had a love and a passion for the natural world and like doing the right thing ethically. And I always kind of had this conflict when I was exploring for oil and drilling for oil in the Gulf of Mexico. I was always like, oh my God, like I, I just, something inside of me like never really morally sat right. Like I was passionate about it. I loved it. I loved the science. I took my job very seriously. I, you know, all the safety, everything, but there was just like something in my heart that wasn't like a hundred percent aligning. So once you know, our industry kind of started renewables, started becoming like a little bit more in vogue. I, I was like, oh my gosh, this is really what, this is what I should be working on and doing. Like, how can I use my skill set and apply it to something that will get us to a cleaner environment? So how can I like the whole energy transition? And that was sort of the inspiration for this podcast. And like, how can I learn about, um, applying what I know to the renewables um, sector. And then now I've, I've signed up and I've enrolled and I'm doing a um, professional master's through Penn State in renewable energy uh, technology and sustainability. So it's definitely pretty far-fetched from like geology, but um, like the original traditional geology that I started out. But I feel like for me personally, um, that this is sort of the path forward for me being happy in my career. Let's put a link to that program. What's that? Sorry. After this podcast, let's put a link to that program. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's been great. It's Penn State's cool because they've been doing online. So it's a world campus. It's a virtual campus. And they've been doing it online for a long time. So they really have it down. They know well. And it's a different network. That's the other reason why I decided to go there as opposed to like School of Mines or Arizona State or some of these things that are more West Texas 
Denver, you know, more akin to the oil industry. This is a East Coast, a completely different network that isn't in my like standard traditional network. So it was a good opportunity to branch out and have access to different people and different different research. So I kind of feel like I get a sense of FOMO sometimes. I fear missing out or just data or information overload with so many new trends and yeah. new developments going on right now. Yeah. Especially well professionally now in your coursework you're doing. I bet you're getting exposed to some of the hottest trends and developments. I think I am, yeah. It feels that way, like, because to them, it's, it's like, it's funny, because to people in the oil industry, it's like, it's the new thing, but to them, it's the old thing. They're like, yeah, we've been doing this for, like, 30 years, <laughs> you know? They're kind of like, okay, so we used to be a special interest, and now we're mainstream. Like, for them, it's, like, kind of weird, and they, they don't, they aren't egotistical about it at all. They're, they're really humble and nice, and, like, it, it's just really cool. It's, it's such a different perspective and just a little bit I start classes next month in May the end of May so I'm really excited to start that um and it's different it's like engineering which is something I've never I've never taken an engineering course so it'll be a lot of engineering and physics for the solar and the wind side of it um but I'm also really excited about the geoethics so there's this more softer skill side to the program as well so um yeah energy there's policy in it um, geoethics, yeah, energy transition, like as a whole, um, the technical component. So I'm really excited. Oh, that's great. Who's teaching that? You know, um, it, I have a bunch of different professors. Um, I only know them on first name basis at the moment. I can't remember just from emailing, but it's a special program. It's like it's a renewable energy professional masters, and it's within their like mining and energy school, if you will, at Penn State. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Have you, ever, have you ever heard of the Clubhouse platform? It's this. Yeah. Oh, I think you're on it. Yeah. Um, I haven't really used it at all yet, though. Right before this, I, I had a chance to be in a room with some incredible people that are deep in the geothermal sector. Oh, right cool. Now. Cool. I hope they get a good chance to talk about that in your program also. Yeah. I Me too. I wondered why we don't put more energy into, into that renewable source. Yeah, because, like, for example, where I live right now in the Rio Grande Rift Valley, this area is in a rift. Like, this is the prime location to have geothermal infrastructure. And it used, like, NMSU used to be on geothermal grid back in the 70s. And then they flipped it over to gas. And I'm just like, why didn't they just leave it? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think now there's there's a, a interest by people here, professors here, that are, like, trying to maybe get more back. To some of that green, greener, if you will, energy. So, oh, fantastic! Yeah, yeah. What other trends do you see coming up? Uh, let's let's go, let's go uh, timeline wise. Let's go first. Tell me about some of the trends that you see post COVID, and mm -hmm. let's talk five years or ten years out for trends. In terms of like the energy sector. Yep. In terms of uh, let's let's do let's do oil and gas and and the energy transition. Okay. What's up? What kind of trends do you see happening with oil and gas? And then what kind of trends do you see going forward in the energy transition and renewables? Yeah. So I think I think what we're seeing like right now is like a major diversification of our energy source. And there's a lot of experimentation and like figuring out 
you know, based on what sort of tax breaks our government gives and stuff like that, like what is economic and what is not. And I think you're going to see like a lot of growth in small, the little guys, like lots of entrepreneurs um, coming on the scene with like green technology, if you will. And I'll just use that as like an overarching umbrella word for anything besides like traditional oil and gas. Um, so it can be anything like enhanced, EOR enhanced, you know, where they inject CO2, to get enhanced recovery, you know, green will encompass that as well. So I think it almost seems to me that you have like a lot of startups and then you also have some of the super majors embracing that and seeing if they can make a go of it because all the technology exists within these companies. It's just who has it, who has what, and what's economic, like what their overhead cost is and what is economic. And I think what's economic is going to be different for like, each company so what size of the company you're at and then it also is very much like dependent on who they hire so what type of people do they have do they have a culture that fosters innovation and creativity and diversity that allows them to make money and maybe places that aren't traditional and I think that that's where a lot of growth is going to be companies that allow people to be um, themselves and allows them to think freely and doesn't have like you know, management doing stuff that, you know, is not ethically shady or whatever, things that can happen for whatever reason. But I think that you're going to see those companies, the ones that are really innovative, they're going to go far. And I think there's a lot of money to be had within the green energy industry. But also, I think oil and gas, I don't think it's ever going to go away per se. We're always going to need plastic, like no matter what in our society, I think we're always going to have to have some component of uh, plastic or access to oil and gas um, just for old machinery, for farming equipment that maybe doesn't get replaced as much as a car, things like that. You know what I mean? So I think you're going to have like a smaller, a shrinking population of oil and gas people because you're going to have these other uh, renewables sort of take that place. And I don't think that this is necessarily like any new revelation that I've had that someone else hasn't already had before. But I I think you're going to see like, you're going to see things, especially coming out of the pandemic, just in general, where things get like really hot, really quick. Like, oh, this is the newest fad or trend. And then all of a sudden it's either going to get figured out or it's not going to work. And then it's going to kind of go on to the next thing. And it's going to kind of all be under like this green umbrella with like a tech component to it. So the people that are able to like figure out using the technology, how to streamline things and make things economic because of the technology, uh, I think are going to be the most successful people. Um, I also think that a really big influence uh, over the next four years, four to five years is going to be our government. So who's going to be elected? Is it going to be... um, someone who really advocates and subsidizes green energy and our tax, uh, corporate tax rates, or is it going to be someone who wants to be like more of a traditional America, what we kind of were before now? Um, so I think that that is going to have the biggest influence of all of what, what you have. Cause I think you have two, two kind of two types of people. You have people who are very passionate about making money. They don't really, it doesn't matter if it's green or not. Um, traditional, it's like, where's, where's the money at? And that's what they chase. And that's, what's important. I think a lot of people fall into that category. And then you have people who are more, um, 
maybe like me where I'm just passionate about things being green because of my background and it's kind of who I am. Like I very much care about the environment and the steward of the environment. Um, and I'm an academic, I'm academic at heart. I love science and I, I love things to be healthy for my environment, you know, for animals, for myself, you know, for everyone. So, and then you also have people who grew up with that oil and gas culture that their whole family has had this oil and gas uh, component in their life. And that's where they're, their family wealth came from or that's just what they're familiar with and they love it and they're very happy and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it and it, it's not to say that they aren't environmental and there's nothing wrong with them there's nothing bad about them or anything like that it's just a different mindset and a different way of life so i, I think of just the traditional like southern sort of oil and gas um types i never really understood the argument between people that are green and then oil and gas people yeah me neither we're drinking the water we're living on the same earth yeah all of our families and our children we yeah. all want a better world to live in yeah i can't think of even the most money hungry soulless person i feel like i know in oil and gas still wants to not leave a negative impact yeah i, I think we just bridge this stop the conflict size and, and, and bridge that we actually do have similar goals for yeah. the environment I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I some of my most cherished friendships are with people who don't necessarily have the same passion that I do, don't have the same political affiliate filament that I do, and, like, I don't care. You know what I mean? It, that's not really the point. The point is that, like, we all need to work together, and we have to accept that, you know, people aren't always going to be like you and like me, like how you think, and that's a good thing. That's it's really good to have like people around you who think differently than you, because if you can merge your talents with their talents and blend them together, like the chance of finding opportunity, whether it be financially or just from like a scientific perspective, um, which hopefully will turn into money at some point. Um, I think that's where the power lies. And at the bot, at the end of the day, you have to know how to get along with people, no matter what you do, you have to be nice. And like, also, if someone's not being nice to you, you need to talk to them and communicate and, like, tell them. You know what I mean? And if, if you decide to part ways, that's fine. But, like, you got to stand up for yourself, be respectful, but then also be nice to other people. So. Oh, that is so funny. I'm going to slaughter my, my knowledge of history right here. So <laughs> I was a famous Spanish explorer who did incredible work, but yet at the end of the day, because he was kind of a, kind of a jerk, got slaughtered by the local, the local indigenous people. <laughs> You know, yeah, because he was rude. It, yeah, people didn't like him, and you know, I wonder if he had, had a different style of leadership. Yeah, if he would have been, you know, sprung up and murdered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, isn't it interesting? Because in history, it's both. You see people who like integrate with the indigenous populations and really help them, and it's like a mutual, hopefully, a mutual exchange. But then you see the opposite, and it's. I think it all depends on, like, yeah, personalities, definitely. It was funny. A friend of mine text messaged me from New York yesterday, and he said, "Ah, does Biden put you guys all out of work yet?" And I'm like, "No, don't listen to the friends. You don't listen to the news. <laughs> we're, we're plenty busy here." Yeah. Yep. <laughs> You're good. Can you uh, can you speak a little bit to some of the carbon capture at all? Um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I started. Um, I started working on that topic specifically a little bit. It's definitely something I'm working toward. Um, just because of my sedimentology stratigraphic background, it's like a natural fit um, to use like my expertise 
And I think that's really great, but I guess my fear is it works. Okay, it, it works, but it really depends on your your basin, you know, what your ceiling lithologies are, what your reservoir, what type of reservoir you're injecting the CO2 in. Um, and we need to understand and have people who are good at communicating the science convey that information because it works and then it really doesn't work. So I think it's important, you know, because it has to work for oil companies to commit to doing this long term. And even there's other companies, not just oil companies that do carbon capture. Um, a lot of people that just do that exclusively up in like the Midwest, for example, to offset the coal emissions coming out of the coal power plants that we've had forever. Um, they're governmental agencies, like nonprofit organizations. They do that. And we have to like really look at the science and okay, let's say a company tries it in a basin, it's not working, it's not working, it's not working because that's what their inf where their infrastructure is and, you know, what they only have access to these reservoirs because they already have these wells. You know, you kind of have to think outside the box. If it's not working, well, why isn't it working? Because it does work some places. So, like, how can you use your knowledge of where it works and actually apply that and make it commercial and economic for the bigger companies? So... Hopefully, it can turn into like a long-term um, way to reduce carbon emissions from the fossil fuel burning process. Yeah, what's the what's the best way that, from a geoscience perspective, people can get involved with this carbon capture initiatives at CCS, CC US? Yeah, it's 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 hard because it's not necessarily the expertise does not necessarily lie within. The companies themselves there might be like a few people here and there but I think it's mostly in national labs in the U.S. and small projects in small places that not a lot of people know about so I think like it's hard actually finding the right qualified really good people that know that have spent like a t an entire career working on it the the one group right now that I think is probably the most established from an academic perspective is the researchers at Battelle in Columbus, Ohio. Um, they There's a carbon capture group right now. They're actually, they have job postings on LinkedIn for project managers and stuff like that. They are a nonprofit organization and they have some really, their lead research scientist, he's amazing. And he's done work like this all over the world and he's just like a plethora of information. So I would definitely keep, Keep your eye on that company, mostly. And there's other people here and there, but you really have to start looking at the literature. If people want to know about it and have it be useful, it's like you got to go to the literature as a good anchor, groundwork starting base, to then be able to translate it to like, okay, what reservoirs are we using? What technology do we have? And how can we sort of fit what we're doing um, from an economic standpoint to what works according to the literature? You have so much knowledge. <laughs> you so powerful and Thank you. in so many different applications in the geosciences. Out of all your different choices, because there's only one of you, <laughs> what, what would be most ideal for you? What would be your, your dream job, your dream role? If you could focus your talents in the most effective place, where would it be? Yeah, that, that one is actually really hard for me because I feel like I've – 
I've been blessed and lucky and I've worked really hard. So I feel like I've, I've had access to all of that. So for me, it's, it's already what I'm doing. I, I mean, definitely someday I want to be a professor and like, I will get there. I don't care how many people try to stop me. I will get there. So, um, someday, <laughs> but, um, until then for me right now, it's, um, I just recently got married. I'm, you know, 35, first time married, uh, having a family. I want to have kids soon, sooner rather than later from like a health perspective. Um, so that is really for me in the near future, establishing a family and having like a really good relationship with my husband, who's also a geologist, uh, is the absolutely number one top priority because I felt like in my 30s during my PhD that not having a family really caused me to suffer like an immediate family my family not necessarily my family I have with my parents and my sister but not having my family not having kids or a husband like really affected my well-being and in not necessarily a good way like I was super lonely during my PhD and it was just very sorry my dog just barked um, it was just very hard on me. So, um, I understand that, you know, some yeah. people don't, it's not their interest or their goal and they're able to focus forward. You know, it's all I've ever wanted in my entire life was my own family. Unit. Yeah. So for someone like me, not having those in place, um, I'm, I'm healthier. I'm more focused yeah. when I have my family yeah. I am without because it's something important personally to me too. I understand that yeah. completely. You know, I, I saw recently a big push on the internet and the LinkedIn normalize motherhood yeah i love that conversation mm-hmm. and it's, now it's getting to be a much bigger conversation maybe europe and australia and other places are ahead of us on this and i know, think they might be a little bit <laughs> you know you know you should have to apologize for saying I'm, i'd like to plan a family yeah or i will get i'm sorry i'm pregnant yeah or, exactly you should your or or hide it like oh i can't or, or well, I can't get pregnant right now because I'm trying to get a job and I won't get hired. I mean, that is a very real thing and it makes me super mad. <laughs> but yeah, it should not be that way. And I know it's it's illegal, but like it still happens. People still do it. Or like you need time off because, you know, you had a miscarriage. That is the one thing that like I feel very passionate about because I know several friends that have had that happen and they've lost their jobs because they had a miscarriage and they weren't able to take like a proper amount of time off and they weren't in a good place and you know whatever led to whatever and they lost their job as a result of it and it's just like that stuff is it's just not okay it, i am it's not okay at all we don't talk enough i believe no it's so technical with our with our geoscience our engineering we don't have enough conversations about mental health yeah good mental health and, and i wonder how many great scientists and engineers world hasn't seen come to their full potential because we then, you know, we, we treat all kinds of outward sicknesses. Yeah. For obvious, but not, we don't treat and recognize and respect mental illness mm-hmm. and the stresses we go through in these careers. Yeah. I listened to a great podcast this week from the VP of Exploration for Chevron. Mm-hmm. That was her comment she regrets. It's not taking a leave of absence during times when her parents were sick and dying. Yep. Or for, or for her children. And she realizes now that her employer would have respected it and given it to her. Yep. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. I think that to be a good scientist, you have to be well emotionally, mentally, all that stuff. Um, I I truly believe that for myself. Um, so now 
for me, my number one priority is like taking care of my health and, you know, getting exercise every day, eating well, like really, really focusing on taking care of my body. And like when I need to rest and stop because I will literally just work myself to death. I don't, it's like I don't have blinders. I just get going on something and I'm like, oh, I want to do so much. I want to do this, 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 this. And then all of a sudden I'm like completely exhausted. I've overworked and it takes me like twice as long to recover. And it's just, and then I get sad because I'm not contributing at the pace that I want to be contributing. And it's, it's just like, don't even go there. If you can prevent it from even getting that way by, you know, going to bed at a decent hour and getting enough sleep every night and drinking enough water, you know, just like these really simple, basic things. Like I'll do any, I'll do everything to to do those basic things. I was so shocked from your, your earlier statement that you weren't into sports in high school. No. You're easily one of the best athletes I know. <laughs> you're a yoga instructor. Yeah. Whenever I, I check up what you're doing, you're out hiking. Yeah. You're very, very active. Yeah, I, I've, I don't know. It's funny. I, so I have a story. So the reason I was never into sports is because I tried out for the girls softball team and I was the only person to get cut. They cut me. They wouldn't even let me try. Like, there's tryouts. Rochelle was, you know, Rochelle was the only one to get cut. And it was so traumatizing. I was just like, oh, well, I guess I'm bad at sports. So then I just always did solo activities. I got into yoga. Shortly thereafter, I was in high school, and this happened. I was a freshman. So I was already feeling kind of awkward. I had, like, glasses and braces and, like, you know, never had a boyfriend, nothing like that. It was just always into my books. And then I get cut, the only person to get cut from the girls' softball team. And then I was just like, okay, well, I'm just going to do yoga. So I would start going to yoga at the library. And I, so I was, what, like, 16? And it was all, like, 60-plus ladies. So that's kind of how it started. So I, I started doing yoga that way. And yeah, I'm a certified yoga instructor. And then I loved going hiking because my parents would take me hiking when we'd go on camping trips. And so I really got into hiking. And then um, they took me cross-country skiing growing up and because we didn't have mountains in Wisconsin. And then now I'm like absolutely love downhill skiing. Um, that's a solo activity. Uh, I can do oh, pretty... Lie, by the way. I finally went to Oh, good. Yeah. There, there were mountains there. I saw them. Yeah, they're little, little mountains. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that's my story. Now I just do a bunch of solo stuff with other people that I like. <laughs> oh, no, no. You're absolutely inspiring. I can't, but you know, anyone in the audience who hasn't had a chance to meet Rochelle, she's drop dead bombshell gorgeous. <laughs> she's been crazy. She's insane. At any time of her life, she wasn't. She's beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, so so let's go over this again real quick. Some of the steps you're doing right now, you're actively doing to, to build this strength. Mm -hmm. In the school program. Yep. Yeah, so I'm um, like in terms of wellness or just like career progression or both? Yeah, I just, I, anyone who's, who's building their their career up and, and you know, taking these steps, if we take a snapshot in your life just right now, mm -hmm. let, let, let us know if you can off the top of your head. Some of the different organizations and just things you're involved in. Yeah, yeah. So I'm involved in a lot of uh, nonprofit work at the moment, um, just because I didn't, I lost my job due to the pandemic. So I just was like, okay, well, how can I serve my community and stay relevant and just doing a lot of research, like a lot of just independent thinking, independent research through this time. So yeah, I do a lot of the nonprofit work 
enrolled in school, going to start working soon, really excited about that. And then, um, yeah, still publishing research papers. I just got some peer reviews back that like made me cry for about a week. <laughs> I got some peer reviews that were really good for one. Yeah, good. Well, it was both because I had two publications. One was really good. One was really bad. So it was like, yeah, it worked out. I'm okay. But that's always very, I take it very seriously. I am personally when I shouldn't. So yeah, so I'm doing a bunch of random stuff. And then, yeah, from a health perspective, I'm just, I, one thing that I'm doing differently going forward, so I don't get burnout, because I've dealt with burnout twice now, um, is I do things at my own pace. I don't let people bully me to do things faster than what I feel comfortable doing, which is something I didn't realize how important for me personally. Like someone wants something tomorrow, like, and I'm not quite there yet. Like if I need an extra day, like, I'm sorry. I, there's a, there is a reason for it, um, for me. So that's why I think I'm really well suited for like academic, um, environments a little bit more maybe than like things where you have like these super, super tight deadlines because I'm really interested in the science and getting the science right. So I need to go at my own pace. That was one of my favorite quotes when I worked at Slumbergate Paratech. So let's have it on the outside of her office that said hurry hurry has no blessing no it doesn't it does you no good it does you no good it does your boss no good and I'm not saying like I take weeks and months and years um well I do have one other publication that's taking me forever that I just haven't quite figured out how I want to do it so I do have one little project but you have your short-term projects your midterm and your long-term projects and distinguishing what what those are I think is really important just giving yourself the time that you need to rest and to think critically and be efficient. So for me, it's all about using my time efficiently. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, we went back to my firefighting days. The number, you know, firefighting can be very intense and mm -hmm. 10 seconds can save a life or it's very dangerous. And the number one trick they taught us to go faster was to slow down. Yeah, it's true. It is so true. And, you know, I never understood that. It took me probably until the pandemic, actually. That has been the gift coming out of the pandemic for me is is that very thing. I never understood what the heck people were talking about. Could not wrap my mind around it. And now I get it. And it is the truth. <laughs> so great. What other, just your great advice here. What, what other kinds of pieces of advice or life hacks can you share with your audience? Yeah, I think I'll, same thing I give my yoga students. <laughs> so I know I'm not teaching right now, but when I have yoga students, um, it's drink lots and lots and lots of water. Like so much, if you start feeling dehydrated, especially living in the desert, like being in El Paso, it's always a fight to stay hydrated here. Um, wear your sunscreen or your hat. <laughs> like it's so important to keep the sun off of you and eat healthy, as healthy as you can, but like not to the point where you aren't enjoying food. I love food, so um, that. And then I think the last thing that has affected me most in my life is relationships. So make sure whether it's through therapy or reading or counseling, educate yourself what a healthy relationship is. Whether it's a personal relationship, a friendship, an acquaintance, um, a relationship with a coworker or a boss. There's a lot of amazing resources, podcasts, audible books, like everything you can think of magazines to find uh, what healthy relationships are. And it's always going to look a little bit different depending on what your personality is. So you really have to get to know yourself. 
But I think that that is like super important to know what your limits are so you don't end up um, in a bad situation. So. It's incredible. You know, it's interesting. Instead of these uh, very big, like, put a quote on your wall kind of <laughs> things you're giving sound so simple and they sound like they should be habitual for us. However, one of the things that I've been doing with my husband is lining up the bottles of water. Probably. Mm-hmm probably less environmentally friendly than using a big container. But what, what okay. it makes us do mm-hmm. is keep us accountable to the day to see if we're even drinking in those, those five bottles of water. And I didn't realize before we started doing that, that, that I would go sometimes days without having axles of water. Oh, wow. The days that we get through all five or six are the days that I have most energy, most focus, most productive, both my employer and myself. And mm-hmm. I don't make bad choices yeah. for my body or any of those things. Yeah. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. Anyone out there, those are powerful pieces of advice that will change mm-hmm. your life. Yes. <laughs> Great. So those are some of the things that you do. Anything else you want to share about what you're doing to maintain your happiness and success? Um, oh, I've gotten into napping. <laughs> so I saw a t-shirt the other day. It says, uh, Jesus takes nap. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> he did. <laughs> Let me tell you. Yeah, I've, got, I've really gotten into napping. I do... So sometimes, like, when I'm working on something, especially, it's mostly tied to m- publishing. I, like, it's such a passion of mine. Um, I, I get really upset by some of the things. Like, I get in my peer reviews and stuff like that. And I just, like, something in my brain just happens where I get really upset. And I just, my, my mood starts to tank. The second I recognize that that's happening and I'm starting to feel sad or, you know, whatever, I stop. I like go for a walk, take my dogs for a walk, and I just lay down and take like a 15 to 20 minute power nap. I just let my body, and sometimes I'll actually fall asleep, and sometimes I kind of just stay in that like twilight phase. But then when I wake up, I, I feel this like surge of um like endorphins basically, where I, I'm like, oh, well, whatever was bothering me before the nap is not bothering me as much now. So working from home has really enabled me to like take care of my mental health in that way. And that was one thing that I always found really hard about the office. I was like, gosh, why don't they have like these pods in a nap room that I'm sure that Google and all these cool companies in California have, like, why don't these companies have this? Cause sometimes you just need like that 10 to 20 minute break pause to just let go, relax and just allow your brain like a little bit of rest so you can get your endorphins back up. So then you can deal with whatever drama is coming your way. Deal with it in, a, in an appropriate and a healthy manner. So then you can move forward and get be productive and get your work done. So that would be yeah, mine. Good napping company with like Leonardo da Vinci, Albert Einstein, Winston Churchill. They were all famous nappers. Really? <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> That's cool. Yep. You know, even with my journey with sobriety, they, it's incredible what you said about taking a break. Mm-hmm. moving yourself from that situation and letting your mind reset whether whether that's emotionally or if you're dealing with food or substance cravings mm-hmm. or any any kind of uh, emotional issue yeah you break and uh, emotions fade they change yeah and you know cravings go away and, and you definitely shared one of the best pieces of advice to, to stay focused is to take a break mm-hmm. thank you Thank you so much, Don, for doing this. I really appreciate your time and your, the, it was your idea. So thank you. <laughs> One of the most fascinating people I know. And I know we barely scratched the surface with your love of love, which is extraordinarily 
team expertise. Thank you for the honor to have mm -hmm. you today and, and interview you. Absolutely. Anytime. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, have a great afternoon and thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Right. Bye. Bye.